Let me do a proper introduction here. Shannon Maroney is an author, a speaker, and restorative justice advocate. And in October 2005, and I think we might have a bit of an issue with our blurb here that we wrote. I'm not sure if you read it, but you, you correct me as I okay. read this. Okay. In October 2005, Shannon Maroney married Jason Staples. Mm-hmm. And having been in a loving and committed relationship for three years prior to that, uh, one month later, after your wedding... Jason attacked and brutally violated two female strangers at his workplace and hours later brought them home or brought them to the home that he shared with you. Is this all accurate? It is. And upon arrest, which he turned himself in for, which obviously we've got to talk about that, he disclosed that he had also committed acts of voyeurism on Shannon and others, videotaping them in the bathroom. Following a two-and-a-half-year court process, he was declared a dangerous offender and sentenced to an indeterminate period of incarceration, uh, Canada's highest sentence. Uh, Shannon faced difficult choices as she searched for a path that would lead her out of trauma toward a positive future. And After personally discovering the lack of help available for families of criminals, she became a restorative justice advocate who speaks internationally on the ripple effect of crime. So much more to your story. The website is shannonmoroney.com, M-O-R-O-N-E-Y, moroney.com, Shannon Maroney. Um, when you share your story, which you've done countless times, speaking different events and whatever, what do you start with? Do you start with the story or do you start with other things? I usually start with uh, how I met Jason. Yeah. And... That the story that existed before the story. Right. Yeah. Is there anything about the story that's, that disturbs you enough that you don't share? You won't talk about? Um, no. I, You're pretty no, open about yeah, everything? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, <laughs> well, we're, I, I guess we're about to find out. Kind of? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. And I think certainly um, through the the process of having told my story many many times, and more so writing it, and and which was a you know two to three year process of writing it, um, I uh, went pretty deeply into all all aspects of sure. the story and came to terms with everything. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I, my mom always says something to me that. Uh, you know, you you can't change your story to make it easier for anybody else. Nice. And I think it's good advice. So nice. it is what it is. We all have our stories. You know, and we you're, can't often change them. You're so, an, I know it's an overused <laughs> term, but you're so blessed to have the support of the family that you have, I right? Am. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're at a conference in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're staying in a hotel. Yep. And you I get a knock a... on the door mm-hmm. and it's the police. Mm-hmm. You look through the keyhole, I'm sure. I didn't. I didn't. No, I knew. I knew someone was coming to the door. Um, How did you know? I, I had. Yep. Yeah, uh, I was. It was a guidance counselors conference. I was a high school guidance counselor at the time, and and on the board of the Ontario Directorate of Guidance Counselors, and we had our annual conference, and uh, it was early in the morning. It was around eight o'clock, and I I was kind of. I'm an early riser. I'm. I've always been an early rider, so I was already up and ready to go, and had a few extra minutes, and so I pulled out uh, a pack of thank you cards, and I began writing a thank you card for a wedding gift since okay. I had been married for exactly a month that day. And while I was doing that, the phone rang, and it was a, a fellow guidance counselor who asking me, um, you know, just want to see if you're still in your room. There's someone who wants to see you. Can I bring this person up? And I said, sure. And I thought, oh, maybe it's maybe it's my guidance counselor from high school or somebody. Like, there's right. going to be some kind of fun Yeah, a little surprise thing or you know? something. Yeah. So, um, so I opened the door, and there was a, a police officer. 
and okay hold on right there pause right there no inkling still at this point as soon as you see a cop at your door you didn't go oh jason no i thought dad i thought kevin my brother i thought car accident um, they are, they're both sales in sales and on the road on all the, the road time road. and in Toronto. And I was in Toronto. I, I lived in Peterborough and, and this is a Toronto police officer. And that's all I just thought was there's been a car accident. How did the police officer start this conversation with you? What yeah. was the, you, do you remember the first words that came out that kind of yeah. triggered you into what was actually about I, to be said? Exactly. He said, um, he, he must have you know, he would know from his experience that that's what everyone is thinking, that there, you yeah. know, there's been an accident. And he said, I'm not here because anyone has died. I'm here about your husband, Jason. And I, even in that second, I, I remember hearing the words like husband, Jason, because it was so, so new. new. It was so new. And he said uh, he was arrested last night and he's been charged with sexual assault. And I, I just had a, a split second to think, there's been some mistake and then he just he said I don't know very much about what has happened Um, the Peterborough police called me or called us the the Toronto police to come here but I understand that he called 911 himself last night and he's in custody okay so as soon as they say that now you know it's legit because he turned himself in yeah now I know everything I'm going to hear is going to be true wow so did the police officer then tell you much more or did he say let's we need to go or what he gave me a piece of paper with the phone number of a sergeant up in peterborough and he said um you need to call uh they need to speak with you uh right away and um he so i did that i called i called the sergeant who also wouldn't tell me very much because they wanted to interview me he just said um, you know, you need to come back to Peterborough as quickly as possible. Um, Jason's in custody. I, I said, what, who, you know, who, who's the victim? W- what has happened to her? Where is she? And he, he just couldn't tell me anything. Look at, at that. that point. Your empathy <laughs> leaking out of you already there, guidance counselor. Lady. <laughs> well, I, 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 think amazing. I, I think I was thinking of myself as a woman, you know, whatever yeah. had happened to her was my, was my worst nightmare. And I'm thinking, Jason, what happened? That's all I could think. What happened? Hmm. And I'm picturing the person, you know, that I had just spoken to on the phone the night before, the person who, um, you know, when I got home from work would greet me with a smoothie every day, a person who had also come very, very far in his life. And I, I just, it, it was like a, a this silence, or the, you know, people say a deafening silence. Mm. You know, the police officer that was there with me was was a very calm, very gentle person. I remember the the sound of his uh, uniform. Like, you know, everything that they have on seemed very heavy. I asked him if he wanted to sit down. I, I felt badly for him having to deliver this news. Mm. Um, and but inside my mind was just a, just this loud crashing of questions mm-hmm. just what what has happened how could this be where is jason where is this woman in fact there were two women there were two women victims i didn't find that out until a little bit later on when i actually did get up to peterborough so um, did you leave the hotel right away then no i called my parents pete and pat <laughs> pat is a retired kindergarten teacher okay and when i called and i i she answered the voice and her kindergarten teacher's voice hi shan how's the conference going i said mom um, is dad still home? Get dad on the phone. Um, something terrible's happened. Jason's been arrested. 
And he's been arrested. He's been charged with sexual assault. And, and I don't know anything more than that. And my mom said, um, you know, well, she, I don't think she said too much. She said, we'll, we're coming. We'll, we'll be there. Where are you? Yeah. You know, they got on the road. It was morning traffic in Toronto. And so I knew it would take a while. And I, I sat down with the, with the police officer and we, and we just waited. Um, when my mom and dad did arrive, um, they came in the hotel room. That's when I started to cry. That the whole time before that, I just sat. I, I I remember looking out the window, at the airport, and it was a it was November the eighth. I remember it being a gray day. My mom says it was sunny, um, but I remember looking out and and seeing all the planes just continuing to take off and the highway busy with traffic and seeing the whole world continue to move. And then this, uh, the image of a stone, you know, when you're, you're winter driving and a stone flies up and hits your windshield, and then you have, you have a split second to think, maybe it's not going to crack. And then it just that slow snaking of a crack right across the whole windshield, and you're just, you're helpless. You're absolutely helpless. And it was like the window that I was looking out of, this, you know, huge stone had hit, and everything, everything was shattering, and I, there was nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do to stop it. Okay, I want to bring people... A little bit up to speed on on the before part of your story. Mm-hmm. And the before part of your story is is even hard for people to grasp. Mm-hmm. And then when they hear this part of the story, mm-hmm. then they really go into, Shannon, come on. How did you not know? How did you not see? Mm-hmm. How did you? Right? All that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, some people do. Some people don't. Yeah. Yeah. So the man you married... Mm-hmm. Um, was in prison for murder before mm-hmm. in his life. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Jason committed a second degree murder just closely after his 18th birthday, which was uh, 15 years before I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, he had served 10 years. He had pled guilty to this murder um, and uh, served ten- his 10 year sentence, was released and had been living back in the community for five years when I met him while I was volunteering at a soup kitchen with some of my students who had volunteered there many times before. And um, he told me that uh, he told me that the first time that we went out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we had volunteered together a few times. He, he was a wonderful person. He was very, very loved by everyone who worked with him. He, he managed over two hundred, or sorry, he managed about forty volunteers, um, and cooked for two hundred, three hundred people three, four times a week. Um, so there was absolutely no way that I ever could have known what Jason's history was had he not told me uh, right away. Right. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a guidance counselor. <laughs> you can tell me, <laughs> you can tell me anything. But when I sat across from him, we, w- we just went out for a tea. That was our first date. And he just, we sat down with our cups of tea and then he just said right away, there's something that I need to tell you. <laughs> See, this, this is the part of the story that interests me actually more than the story. Mm-hmm. The part of the story as an amateur sociologist is, for example, when I'm at a big gathering and the smoking hot human being walks into the room, guy or girl, whatever, and all the heads kind of turn, I love watching the people watch the person. And in your story, to me, far more interesting than the details of the nasty things that happened are, uh, I guess, is your journey and who you are as a person and people's response to who you are as a person. Because everything, I, I don't know you, but you... you you lead with empathy. You do. That's why I dropped that word a while ago. It comes out in in the in the job you chose, the counseling stuff, you know, school thing. And so, I'm sure that people who, when they get to know you, Shannon, that you have a lot of protectors in your world. 
Do you have people that kind of feel that they're, they want to protect you? Have you always had someone in your life that wants to protect you and, and uh, stand up for you? Or are you known as a tenacious, gracious person? Well, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Um, I, I don't actually particularly think of myself as having a lot of protectors. I think of myself certainly in this experience of being very, very exposed and vulnerable. Right. And having lots of love and, and people who support me. But there's also an enormous amount of loss um, in, in this journey. You know, people who just kind of really just walked away. Like, you know, this is not, we can't. We just can't walk with you on this journey. This is, or we just need to get away. There was an enormous amount of fear, very justified fear. That the acts that J- Jason committed were were horrific right. and, and terribly frightening. But but Shannon, so, you, you know, I'm sorry. This is just stu- silly interview stuff here. But but I'm trying to put my head in the position of those around you, and I'm sure either they said it directly to you or they thought it. Really, you're marrying a murderer. Really, no one said that to you. Um, well, it was not, certainly not everyone knew for one thing. I mean, it, it's not, uh, we, we had confided know. in, um, you know, a number of people, certainly yeah. my parents, you know, it was, and it was a very big process for me, first of all, for me to come to terms with Jason's past. That was a, that was a pretty heavy burden that sure. he gave me there at the table when he told me about this past. But and, it was right um, at the start, right? It was the right, first. It was right at the start. Yeah. And, you know, I knew that even if we were going to develop, a friendship that I somehow had to work through this information that he had just that he had just given me, mm-hmm. um, and it really had to be very much I think head over heart uh, in terms of the research. You know, going to talk to the people in his world, parole officer and psychologist, all the people that he knew and that had helped bring him back out to the community and so on. And what I just saw and heard and read in reports over and over and over again was, this is a rehabilitated person. Mm-hmm. His, this crime as an 18-year-old was the one-time act of a teenager, and we don't have concern that he'll ever reoffend. And the person that I was getting to know, Jason, it was always, you know, very, very difficult to believe, which isn't saying I didn't believe. Of course I be- believed and knew that everything was true, that he had committed this crime. But it was very hard to match up with the person that he was right. and the person that I lived with you know, for over t- over to you know almost three years, uh, was a very uh, a loving, uh, gentle, and kind person, and that's who he was to everyone who knew him. And so, even when when people found out, or when you know, when I told, for example, my parents, I allowed my parents to meet him once, just as I had, without knowing about his past, yeah. and then I told them right away. And they had the same reaction as me, and which which continued to be the same the reaction from people in life was was a real sadness, hmm. uh, a sadness for the victim whose life was lost, a sadness for this young man who had committed this crime, and that I understand that that you know that can be very difficult to believe. I'm telling you, I'm telling you how it was, and and you weren't there, yeah. um, but that is that was the experience, and and that for me, you know, I, I as far as I knew, I never met a murderer before in my life. And when Jason was telling me this, I'm, I'm putting that together and, and going, but this is, a, this is a very human being here across from me. And I had to confront at that time many of my um, beliefs or the stereotypes that I had about what a killer looks like and who a killer is and, and start to realize that this is, 
it may be that these are very human people that have made horrific choices or mistakes. What it, and what has happened to them to bring them to this point? You know, I think that was when we talk about empathy or compassion that I had to, you know, go into that journey right at the moment of meeting Jason and, and, and come to terms with that. Um, and, I, you know, I think I was able to. And I remember, you know, thinking about forgiveness. And I know you found me through the, the Forgiveness Project. Um, there was a, a, there's a quote about forgiveness that says, forgiveness means letting go of all hope for a better past. And that is what I, like that. I I've had. Never heard that yeah. no, I, I love that. Yeah, and I think that's what I had to do with Jason. You know that here I was meeting this this can, wonderful can you person. Say it again? Sorry, can you sure. Say it? I'm just trying to lock it down in for my sure. head. For sure. Yeah. Um, forgiveness means letting go of all hope for a better past. I just want it one more time for our social media girls because yeah. <laughs> this is the quote we're yeah. going to post. Say it one more time. Mm. Forgiveness means letting go of all hope for a better past. Yes. And I think it's very tied in with acceptance and um, and reverence. And that's, I think, how I went forward in my relationship with Jason and how I, I believed he did as well, was that we chose to develop our relationship. We fell in love. We were, we had, you know, people around us that um, loved and supported our relationship and that, that people could understand. You know, my mom said that the night that, uh, she said the night that she met Jason, she went to bed thinking, that's him. That's, that's, you know, that's the person for Janet. Really? Yeah. And, and then she was, you know, <clears throat> de- was devastated to find out that about this past mm-hmm. that no one could change. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I think that's, on. so that's where I was at. I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. about, uh, I don't even know how I can word this properly. Um, <laughs> does it matter how he committed the murder in order for people to, process the forgiveness or process moving forward and or process trusting this person so for example if jason murdered this person in this way or whatever mm-hmm. way you know you, you could go oh no i'm sorry i can't i can't give, i can't i can't mm-hmm. sign off in a relationship with you mm-hmm. but if you murdered somebody this way okay i can sort of see how maybe that would happen and it doesn't really suggest that you're the monster that you know what i mean mm-hmm. Does it matter how he murdered this person? Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I, on one level, murder murder is murder, but it, it certainly does matter. I think, you know, in our in our legal system would show that as well, that it very much does matter how a murder takes place. Was it planned? Was it calculated? Right. In, in what vein was it done? Um, how, you know, all those sorts of things. And and again, you know, I, I remember just, just wishing... Anything could be different. I, mean, I really wanted to wish away Jason's past. I did. You know, here I was meeting this person and, and feeling such a strong connection, like a real, you know, was a, he was a real soulmate for me. And um, and just wishing that this that this didn't exist. You know, in fact, and we were going along kind of in a relationship, but it was, it was such a burden. And um, a, another guy that I'd gone out with before um, let me know that he was coming back into town. He'd been away for a few months. And I, I said to Jason, you know, and I think let, I'm – I'm actually, I'd like to go out with him. Let's just kind of take a pause on our relationship here. And I really just wanted this other guy to be as wonderful and special as Jason was but without the past. But he wasn't. He was, he, I'm sure he was for someone else, <laughs> but not for, <laughs> not for me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's like, the, that was my <clears throat> challenge, I think, was to, I had to accept everything. And it, it accepting you know, and, and finding forgiveness is not the same as 
um, or is any way connected with forgetting about what has happened or the gravity of, of what has happened. It's, I think, about going forward with a reverence for that. And the belief for me, for Jason, for everyone who knew him, professional or, or friend or family member, was that this was something in the past. Hmm. So when he then committed these crimes in 2005, 18 years later, the shock was so enormous. I, I think sometimes it was worse. I don't know. I'll never know what it, you know, who, who cares about the what ifs or the, the um, you know, the, the um, you know, just what, what, what didn't happen, but that, that we had trusted him, that he was on a second chance, the so, best second chance anyone could have. Sure, but did you, because of that, I'm assuming because of everything you just said, you were able to not beat yourself up as much. Because you just said a whole bunch of stuff that just not justified. It sounds like a horrible. That's not. A, that's a crap word to say. But helped you move forward in a relationship with him. Right? You just a whole bunch of things. Okay. This. Yeah. His parole officer. This person. This person. We checked the. You know. Background check. And everyone says. You know. This was an instant thing. It was a rage. You know. Teenage rage thing or whatever. And and it wasn't this kind of murder, it was this kind of murder, and it didn't match up with who this guy is, and he's a soup kitchen guy, come on. I mean, those are the best guys to find, I guess, whatever. Um, so you sign off in this relationship, and then he goes ahead and does something horrific again. Did you, were you able to give yourself a pass, or did you take that stick, the proverbial stick that so many people pick up in that scenario and start bashing yourself how did I not see this? And what a fool am I? And did you do that? Uh, no. Good. I, I didn't. Amazing. I didn't. I mean, I, I knew that. I, I mean, I asked Jason. I, this is the first time when I went to the jail to see him about three days after he was arrested. Yeah. Um, because I, ne- I needed to ask him, well, what happened? This is all that was going through my mind. What happened? What happened? How could you do this? What was going through your mind? And, you know, these are the questions when, you know, later if, if we do get to talk about restorative justice, these are the questions that most victims or people have been who have been harmed by crime, whether you're a direct victim or you're a relational victim as I was or, or you know, I was a direct victim as well of these lesser charges. But y- y- it, these are the questions that you most want answered. Why did you do this? How? Why me? Why them? Why why today? You know, how do, would I ever, you know, get into your mind and know, you know, but th- these are not the questions that our criminal justice system is going to ask. And in my situation, you know, Jason was, after his arrest, um, he was put into solitary confinement. He stayed there for nine months. And I was in the community. I was totally exposed and it, would have it been was easier if you terrifying. Had been in solitary. I wanted to change places with him. There were times when it was so terrifying and and just so overwhelming and the trauma was so enormous and yeah. all the ripple effect I I did. I wanted to be given a quiet place to think where someone would put three meal uh, three meals through a slot in my door and I wouldn't have to answer to anybody about things I couldn't even answer. And I wanted Jason to have to come out and clean up the mess that he created and answer for himself. And this was when I realized, you know, something about jails and prisons that I'd certainly never thought of before is that just as, you know, they do um, protect society from people who are dangerous, at least for as long as they are in, in jail or prison, they also protect those people from 
facing up to the consequences of their actions and being in any way meaningfully responsible or accountable to the people that they've hurt. And this is just, was just profoundly wrong for me. Okay. Before we can mm-hmm. talk about restorative justice, mm-hmm. we need to, I think, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not getting this right, but I think we need to talk about, about the ugliness, about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Because restorative justice, um, it's like generic forgiveness. Um, if you just forgive someone generically instead of, instead of specifically, you will only experience generic freedom. And generic freedom is not real freedom. There's, there are specifics that are attached to each story of forgiveness and freedom, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. You, you know a lot, a lot more about this than <laughs> I do. What did he do? Uh, Jason, um, th- there were, he worked part-time in a health food store. He had just graduated from art school and um, was working on his portfolio and sending it out to publishers and so on um, as an illustrator. And um, uh, a customer walked into the store, a 46-year-old woman, uh, in the afternoon. She came in to buy tea, and uh, Jason brutally attacked her, sexually assaulted her, and then confined her in the basement of the store. Um, A short time after that, another customer came in. She was 26 years old, and uh, he... I, th- I think my understanding now is that he was then in a panic. He thought maybe she had heard what had happened with the first person, or I, I don't, it's, one can only imagine the kind of state of mind that he was in. He very similarly uh, tried to assault her, and she um, fought back with him. He choked her to unconsciousness, and then he brought her to the basement, uh, the basement well. where, where, she, uh, where the other woman was as well. Jason then, um, he had ridden his bike to work that day, um, and so he um, called a rental van company and rented a van and took the women to our home, which is very was very close by. This is in Peterborough. If you've ever been there, mm-hmm. you can kind of picture the courthouse on the top of the hill. And if there weren't any trees, you could stand in the courthouse and you could see the school where I worked, our house um, on the other side, the courthouse, the place where we got married, and all that, that sort of thing. So he brought them to our home. Uh, he brought them inside. By this time, night had fallen, and uh, the women very bravely tried to talk with him. They tried to rehumanize him. He brought them to the basement of our home where, you know, I remember finding out all these details sitting in the police station, and they're telling me these things over and over, and, and just feeling like um, that this helplessness that I said before mm-hmm thinking, please let something of mine have comforted them. Hmm. I had a sewing machine. I painted the walls yellow. It's so, it seems so stupid, you know, just so, uh, just, I, but I think it speaks to the helplessness that there was nothing I could do to, to have stopped this from happening. They, there was a lot of Jason's artwork on the wall. There were photos of us. They asked him, you know, do you have a, a girlfriend or a wife? Like, tell us about her. Tell us about your artwork. And they were very successful in bringing Jason back to some degree of humanity. They described him in their statements as kind of flipping between being this kind of, um, you know, for lack of a better term, and to use the term that was on the paper, the front page of the paper the next day, this kind of monster, and being a, a, a remorseful, um, you know, more human, depressed and sad, um, apologizing person. Mm. Eventually, he said, 
of course, they feared for their lives. Absolutely. Um, He then said to them at some point, I'm not going to take your lives. Um, He um, answered the phone when I called him at 10 o'clock. I called him when I whenever I was away for these meetings or any other other work. I um, always called at 10 o'clock. So I called him at 10 and um, he, he didn't answer right away, actually. And I remember thinking, oh, he's probably just taking the recycling out. It was recycling night. And I called back. And then he um, he sounded a, a little off. And I said, are, are you are you okay? And he said, yeah, no, I'm okay. So my stomach's a bit upset. And I teased him. I said, have you been drink- eating junk food all weekend <laughs> while I've been away? Oh, that is something that a husband would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, no, no, it's okay. Just tell me about your day. And that morning, I'd heard a keynote speaker, a thalidomide victim, um, who you know overcome so many obstacles in his life and I was telling Jason ab- about him and I said you know I'm so proud of you you've come so far you know look at this beautiful life that we have we just got married we own this little tiny house that we'd been fixing up I had a job he graduated straight A's from art school and um, he said thanks I, I really need to hear that right now and then I told him I thought I might be pregnant and then he said that's great we'll take a test when you get home tomorrow and um, and we hung up. And I said, we said, I love you, and I hung up the phone. And when I put it together, you know, the next day, when I'm getting all this information about what's happening, I realized that these two women were there in my home while I'm happily chatting about how beautiful our lives are. Again, it was just this feeling of uh, just utter helplessness, mm-hmm. that, that I couldn't have stopped this. And Jason didn't give me or anyone else a chance to stop this. And that was one of the first questions that I asked, you know, going back to when I went to see him was the question my, my mom actually asked when she came to the hotel room. The first thing she said to me was, didn't Jason know how much we loved him? Hmm. Didn't he know? And it wasn't that we were looking for excuses for hmm. what he had done, this appalling, appalling violence. We were trying to make sense of the senseless. So how, and what, so that's what I asked him. What point did he decide to... C- Turn himself in and call nine one one. Yeah. So he um, so after our phone call and after the women had spoken with him, he then went back to the store where he got a ladder and some rope, and began to formulate a suicide plan. Um, he came he came back to our house, and um, actually, I'm sorry. I think that's when that's when he answered the the phone call for me was after after he had gathered those those okay. materials, yeah. and. Um, and then he made the decision to go down to a payphone at the bottom of our, our street and call 911. He told them who he was and what he had done and gave them the address of her home and he asked them to come and rescue the women. And he was still planning at that point to go then, back. like, he actually drove back up. We live on the top of a hill. He drove it back up to an adjacent street. He watched the house for the police to come to make sure that they got in, that they got the women, and yeah. his plan was to drive into the woods and hang himself. But the police didn't come. They didn't come for about 25 minutes. And so Jason went back to the same payphone, and he called again. And this time he was in a panic. Like, Where Why didn't are they you? come? They didn't believe him? They didn't come. They told me the next day um, that he, he had said, I'm a parolee. This is not a joke. I, I you know, you need to. Um, and then, then the police began looking through their files, and they couldn't find the file for him. They blamed corrections and said corrections <sighs> didn't give them the file. I mean, it was just a kind of a silly thing. But they, they also said, you know, we didn't know what this was. What are we being drawn into? Is this a prank? Is yeah. this, or, you know, and they were, so they had gathered some squad cars in a nearby park. 
and they were sort of formulating a plan. They were tracing his call, and then he went back to the same payphone. So then they swarmed in and performed a high-risk takedown, which at is guns drawn right. at the yeah. at the payphone, and, and took him into custody. And um, that's where the plan, you know, that's where I remember thinking very like in the beginning of all the trauma. I wish that he died. In, in, in before doing any of this, you know, I wished, I wished, I wished for that car accident. Mm. But soon I realized, you know, all that would have been unanswered with that. And whereas with a living person that I hoped I could talk to, I might be able to get some answers. And that's ultimately what led me then to uh, go and speak to Jason in the jail. Okay, a uh, couple things. First of all, my left leg is asleep because I haven't moved for 15 <laughs> I'm minutes. Sorry. No, that doesn't happen. And I'm so fidgety that I'm all over the place and I'm just, I'm paralyzed by this story. Uh, the book is called Through the Glass by Shannon Maroney. It's in my hands right now. It's M O R O N E Y, Through the Glass. One month into our marriage, my husband committed horrific, violent crimes. In that instant, the life I knew was destroyed. I vowed that one day I would be whole again. This is my story. How did you get into another relationship without a boatload of trust issues? <laughs> I know, right? Um, people say often, like, how could you ever trust again? And the only thing that I can think is, how could I not? Hmm. What kind of a life would I have? Yeah. I was 30 when this happened. Um, I hope to have a long life ahead of me. Hmm. I had parents that love me, friends. I love life. And I'm really, really grateful for wherever that came from, <laughs> um, whether I was part maybe partly born like that um definitely raised like that but you hear this phrase all the time um, a part of me died um, does that mean anything to you no not particularly you were just like a walking ray of sunshine (laughs) aren't you oh well (laughs) i don't think so all the time but um, i want your husband i want to ask your husband that question yeah no that's exactly what i was just thinking is oh well (laughs) you should have seen me when i had newborns (laughs) newborns <laughs> it doesn't bring out the best in you no i i but i i think um i am a, i am a positive person yeah. and absolutely and i i do love life and i had to believe through this that that there was an awful lot worth living for were you pregnant i i don't know i um i think so i immediately began bleeding uh when like when the police officer was still there with me in the hotel room so I think. Do you have children now? Yes, I do. How many children do I you do. have? I do. I have twins. They're five and a half years old. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I have twin grandsons. Oh, that must be the best. I think it would be the best to have be a grandparent of twins. I see my parents having a great time while I sometimes am overwhelmed. Overwhelmed? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Do so you? That's my big, but you know, that's the, I think I, you know, I'll <coughs> relate those things, you know, when this happened. I can't even say that this was my worst nightmare mm. because I didn't have the imagination to dream this up, this kind of nightmare. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, right? absolutely. And 
I just had to believe. I think it's a, actually a, a law of physics, Newton's third law, or something. I don't know. I'm not. I'm really not. I'm not a physics or math person. But it's that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I just remember thinking that and thinking then it must be mathematically true and not only possible but probable that just as the most horrific unimaginable thing has happened the most imaginable beauty is ahead it can happen too and i just i just held on to that i just held on to it you are such a whole junkie. <laughs> I know, right? That's <laughs> really. I love but it's, it. Um, it's it is very often what you have, and fortunately for me, you know, as much as there was loss, as I said, there were people that walked away. I lost my job because of this. I, you know, my employer, a public school board said, um, "You represent something terrible. You, who, who did not commit the crime, who was not a, you represent something terrible. It's too difficult for people to see you. Don't come in the school." without permission and you'll be relocated to a school outside of town when your doctor says you're ready to come back to work. This kind of I'm allowed to be angry at that, right? Yes, please be angry at that. I'm yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a I'm teacher angry. myself. That, that oh. just doesn't make any sense. No, to me. it it doesn't. Is I thought it small yeah. town mentality maybe I mean Peterborough's not the biggest place. It's not the biggest place and I don't want to draw any stereotypes on Beautiful, beautiful small towns that are founded on principles of community oh, yeah, no, belonging. I'm not saying that. Um, so I can't say, but I think it is um, an enormous amount of fear and uh, something called guilt by association that I just didn't think still existed and mm. stigma. And that's really the primary goal for me in, in terms of going public with the story, in terms of um, writing about it, is to say, you know, this this happens and we can do better than this when we're you know punishing not the not the offender for the offense that that's really wrong and this really extends out the ripple effect of crime you know I, I never got a chance to say goodbye to my students and for many of them I knew I was the only reliable adult they confided in not only did I work in the main high school as a guidance counselor but also the, the year prior I um, started and ran uh, an alternative program for homeless youth these were some you know, crown wards. They were kids with no one. Yeah. And I was that person. And I, I remember saying to my principal and the superintendent, please, like, th there's, there's another way. I, it's not like I thought I was just going to walk back into school like nothing had happened. These crimes affected our whole community. And all I could think was, you know, as, as maybe the guidance counselor, as someone who believes in, in community and, and healing, like, let's, we need to take care of each other here. And... None of that happened. You know, I don't know if it's because I, wa I wasn't in the school to make sure it happened, to call the crisis team, to, to address how people were feeling. Instead, you know, this, the principal made an announcement at lunchtime in the staff room, then told everybody, don't talk about it. <laughs> and it was extremely traumatizing for people who knew me, who knew Jason. Some had been at our wedding. You know, some people who had in their own lives experienced trauma. This was a, was a terrible, you know, thing to cope with. And none of that had to happen. You know, there are other ways to to go through an experience like this without making it worse and, and, and um, you know, multiplying the number of, for lack of a better term, victims or people who are affected or harmed by this kind of, kind of thing. Okay, just, mm -hmm. uh, two, well, a couple things. First of all, 
there's no way we could have stopped where we needed to stop. So we've gone over time a Thank little you. bit. I appreciate it. But we do, but we do got it. We, we yeah. do got it. We do wow. got it. We, we do, do got to wrap up. She's, she's an English teacher too. <laughs> this is why the, you know. This is why I actually wrote this entire book. People always say to me, "You should write it. You should write a book. You should write a book." And at the time, I would think, "Oh my God, what a horrible thing." I'm going to have to relive all this. Yeah, it sounds yeah. awful. But then once I started to be asked to speak about it and I realized, oh, my goodness, in a, you know, in a 45-minute keynote or something, I can just scratch the surface. Yeah, barely. And what I most want to is most important okay. to me is nuance and detail. Okay. So, so let's, get, mm-hmm. let's just get to this for a second. Yeah. Because of the context of our show, the format of our show, yeah. right? It's Kansas Most Listened to Spiritual Talk Show. The term forgiveness, you know, we just had someone on the show, was it last week, I think? Yes. Whose father was murdered. And she and her, and, uh, same site, by the way. That's how I found you. I found her okay. on the site. Yeah. What's it called? The Forgiveness Project. The Forgiveness Project. Project. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy that killed her father and this woman are now friends, and they work together, and they talk about reconciliation. Is it Margo? No. <laughs> um, but what I what I want to know is that, you know, yeah. in that situation, the, the religious guy was the guy mm-hmm. who did the killing. Mm-hmm. The forgiver, mm-hmm. eh, not really into the religious stuff so much. Right. So what's your take on does God stuff play any role in your forgiveness of things or because yeah. you always hear it's always yeah oh, the, I, I reached up to the Lord and or you know if Jesus died on the cross for me then how you know and, and I've sinned and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory you know all this yeah. kind of stuff yeah so what's your God thing and how does it fit in, fit into the forgiveness stuff yeah um, not not for me um, forgiveness for me is a really practical tool. To um, that allows me to, um, you know, they always say like forgiveness lets crit- critics of or skeptics of forgiveness will say it lets some it it lets somebody off the hook, and I agree, forgiveness does let someone off the hook, and for me it it was for me, it it wasn't about letting Jason off the hook, at all, it was about wanting to hold Jason to accountability and knowing he's going to be punished for the rest of his life. And, and that actually that punishment isn't really going to bring much to anybody. Mm-hmm. But forgiveness for me was and is a commitment to see the human being behind the horror. And that in turn allows me to be in touch with my own humanity. And um, it creates a space of, as you said before, freedom and a place where I can trust again. And that just seemed like a very practical thing to do. And it's, it's, it's a journey, you know, I, for me, forgiveness isn't, I, I did at one point offer it to Jason, you know, and, but I don't think he can even accept it. So then, well, if he can't accept it, can, can it not be? You know, I think some forgiveness is something that you can do for yourself and, and it's a way of, of living and, and um, that has had many, many rewards. Um, but it is also something I've had to recommit to over time. You know, because that the anger and the helplessness and and rage, those things do flare up um, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly came back for me when I um, had my newborn twins, and I had a very traumatic delivery, and and you know it was it was a very difficult time, and a lot of my anger toward Jason and and everything that had happened just just flooded right back in as my resources were so depleted and I actually wrote Jason a letter at the time I hadn't been in touch with him for quite a long time and I I wrote him a letter and that said um dear Jason I unforgive you I unforgive you for this I <laughs> it's affected me my whole life I'm not the mother I thought I was going to be and then even worse I mailed it <laughs> and sent it off and uh 
it, it arrived, as I, as I found out later. He called me about five days later. I saw the government of Canada calling me, so then I know it's something oh, about right. my taxes or it's an inmate. Right. And um, I, I did answer the phone, and, and he again, he just said, I got your letter. I got it. Uh, we were just going into a five-day lockdown. So I sat with it in my cell. And I had a pang of that, that you know, sometimes we, we want the power to punish, but it's actually a horrible thing to have, really, is, mm. the, is the power of punishing someone. It doesn't really feel that good. We think it's going to feel good, maybe for a moment, but it didn't feel that good. And all he could say again was, I am so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? And <laughs> what can he do from prison? What can he do? But at least, you know, there was a, not at least, but just there was then another dialogue. It, it, it reminded me that there's that human again. There is that human mm-hmm. that I committed to remembering. And I am stuck in this place of rage that is actually, it's not doing anything for that human in jail. It doesn't make a difference for him. It is affecting my newborn babies and my family as it is now and disallowing me from living the kind of life and being the person that I want to be. So the choice is mine. So, you know, I kind of said to him, like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I, I re-forgive you. Like, as if it's just this, like, commodity to give and take. I re-forgive you. And again, in that moment, it's, it's just releasing me from that kind of, all those negative feelings that we associate with, with being a victim or being stuck, like, it, at the hands of someone else's decisions. You know, I think a victim is this V word for voiceless and vulnerable. And I want it to be, you know, always in, in all the work that I do with people who are victims or people who are offenders, and many times one in the same, um, that we want the V to stand for having a voice, um, being, you know, being vocal, being vibrant, and, and all those better positive things. And so sometimes I think forgiveness for me, it wasn't something I felt I should do uh, for a religious reason of, of in any way. It was a very practical way of reminding myself that, and this is what it means to be human. Hmm. Um, I do have a friend named God, <laughs> you know, that I kind of hung on to from my Catholic upbringing, even mm-hmm. though I left the Catholic Church when I realized, hey, where are the women? Where are the gay people? What's going on here? And I, I left I the institution. It was very, very distressing yeah. for a 16-year-old who yeah. really cared about the world. Sure. And rights and so on. But I was raised with a you know, very friendly and loving image of, of God. And so I, and I'm a very fair-weather friend of God. I mean, I'm like, I forget to say thanks. And, you know, when things are going well, and then, of course, things go badly. And I'm, there I am begging or saying my two, my two main prayers, which are, please, please please, 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 please. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And so, you know, I was grateful. That was a dialogue that was helpful for me, this relationship with God as just kind of this friend that I, I did realize very early on in my kind of bargaining with God, which I do is like, okay, buddy, I'm not going to ask you why. I get that not even you are going to be able to answer why. And if I ask why, I'm going down a dark road. Yeah. I'm going down a dark road. So instead, I just asked my buddy God, what do you want me to do with this? Interesting. What do you want me to do with mm. this? And, you know, it was a dialogue. It was just a, just a place I could, I could be me, I think, and be accepted. Yeah. And, and that's how it was for me. But the forgiveness is pretty practical. That's a great place to stop. <laughs> it is. Obviously, we could talk for a very long time because there's so many nuances here. There's so many things to explore. 
But let me encourage people not just to get this book because, oh, this poor girl, she went through bad stuff, and let's buy her book and <laughs> support her. Not. No, no. let's get this book because there's so much more to what you're talking. And I've just listened to you over those last 40 minutes and just said, wow, you know stuff that the rest of us just don't have an inside scoop on and because of the garbage that you've had to process. And thank you, honestly thank you, for putting it in this book, for spending two whatever years to write this book, uh, for sharing a bit, just a snapshot of your journey with us on, on the show. That's what this is all about. Again, like I said to you on the phone, I don't give a holy grunt what you believe. I want to know, you know, how your belief or lack of beliefs gets impacted by what you've been processing. And that last part was so interesting to hear. It was just fascinating. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you very much.